Would you join with me in prayer? Father, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in Jesus Christ, and that we can come to you boldly now, Father, in our time of need for grace and mercy. You will not turn us back. You will incline your ear to us. You will hear us and you'll move um, with compassion and grace towards us. We thank you for that. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit that will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and encouragement to follow in this word. Father, I do thank you for the word. I I stand impressed and uh, overwhelmed with the reality of of even reading it and trying to explain it. And, uh, but I do believe in the Spirit of God and that he must take these words and implant them deep within the souls of each person here, uh, bringing about a harvest of righteousness for the glory of your name and for the joy of all these people when they uh, will die and stand before you, that this word will in some measure be instructive and helpful Uh, for that final day for them. And so trusting that you are not a man that you should lie, nor a son of man that you should change your mind, that you uh, speak and um, you act, you promise, and you'll fulfill. And so we rest in that now as we come to this word. Uh, Father, I do pray for humility. um, Well, guard over my mouth that I would speak the truth and uh, speak it in a way that is consistent with the text and um, and that we would be humbling ourselves right now under this mighty word um, for your glory and for our joy. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think I can speak for all of us when I say that we love the stories of endurance and faithfulness. So when you see stories of faithfulness and endurance in life, it does draw your heart. It encourages you. We we look at the stories of the Wilberforces of life, a British statesman that labored so diligently and, and made such effort through his whole political career overcoming obstacles in terms of trying to reverse slavery or to, to get laws established to prohibit its, its uh, use in England and then, of course, in this country later on. But, but, or I think of an Adoniram Judson, that first missionary to Burma, you know, the his life was, I, I preached on him about four years ago, his life was littered with tragedy, burying wife and children and, and just being in prison and sick, and yet he faithfully pushes on. And you look back at those lives and you just think, God, thank you for those. I mean, those are helpful to us to see people be consistent, even in the midst of trials and obstacles. And I see it in some of your lives. I've seen some of you have gone through great tragedy and trial, and you have endured, you've been faithful, you have been hope-filled in the midst of great trouble and trial. And that's encouraging. You know, it is not just a problem for the non-Christian. The non-Christian often struggles with the Christian faith because of the difficulty of reconciling difficulties and trials and the goodness of God. And it really is a problem that the Christian faces. I mean, the Christian has trouble not with maybe believing in God, but living in light of God, given the fact that all these trials are part of our lives. And how do we reconcile the goodness of God? Because when you're in trials, you feel like God is unreal. God doesn't, definitely doesn't seem close to you, but he often feels very unreal to us in trials. 
And this is why we've been doing this series on the cries of the soul. We've been trying to give you words and instruction and help so that when you go through trials, which each of you will, that you're going to be able to have words. You're going to be able to understand God. You're going to be able to look at him and respond differently to him. Hopefully, faithfully, you'll respond to him in times of trials. That's the purpose of this series. And it may be, excuse me, it may be a bit redundant, but there are some things that need to be repeated to, to get them past our barriers and get them past our, our preconceptions of what things should be like. And so we're going to look at Psalm 40 today. It's not surprisingly a Psalm of David, and uh, he's back in a spot of trouble again. And, uh, and, and what we're going to see in this Psalm is David is going to instruct us that for us to be fortified in a present trial, we want to look back at the mercies of God and at the character of God. In other words, there's two things in play here. Uh, because a, a lot of liberal scholars think this is two psalms put together incorrectly because it begins with a, a psalm of thanks or acknowledgement and it ends with a psalm of lament or sadness or a plea for deliverance. And what David's doing is he's saying, no, to, to walk faithfully in a life filled with trials, you have to know the past mercies of God in your life. You have to be aware of what has God done in your life. And you also have to be aware of the good character of God. Those are the two foundational pieces for us to then approach trial that may be your part of life here in the next six months that we can walk faithfully in that. So turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 40. And let's, uh, I'm going to read it in pieces because I want to read a section. And, and then if I forget to start reading again, <clears throat> then uh, yeah, Carol will smile at me and... I'll have been preaching on without reading the text. Let me just read the first three verses. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So David here is, is looking back in his life at a past time of deliverance. And you know it was a colossally difficult time for him in the language that he uses. He talks about a pit of destruction and a miry bog. We don't know what these are. We don't have any indication that they're a specific issue. It could have been depression. It could have been some outside circumstance from enemies. It could have been uh, just the consequences of just good old sin in his life. We, we don't know. And I'm kind of glad we don't know because we can use this psalm, I think, faithfully and more generally at the situations that we live in. But I do know this. I do know the intensity of his trial was not to be under, underestimated. He talks about a pit of destruction. Now, you know, this desolate pit, if you will, if you were to fall in a deep hole over which you could not climb out of, and you're so far away from things that you could scream and scream for 10 years and nobody would ever hear you. It's kind of giving you an imagery, or perhaps it's a prison he's thinking of. You know, the prisons in the old days were just dug into the ground, and there was one hole in the top. That's all there was. All the rain, all the air, that's all they had. And you would be on the ground, in the floor. You can just imagine what that prison would be like. I mean, people would die there. And he's in this pit of destruction. He's in this miry bog. There's two Hebrew words together kind of indicate a floundering helplessness. There's no foothold. You know, you're stuck in this mud pit. 
You cannot get your foot, you cannot get your hand grasping anything secure, and you have no way out. It's utter helplessness. I mean, the picture here is that David is powerless to make any change to his situation. And it's right there that he says, I waited patiently. David turns to God in prayer. And in Hebrew, it's waiting, I waited. So there's the emphatic nature of waiting. There's a delay. There's a perseverance he's exhibiting. That he is praying, he's seeking, he's crying out to God. This is a desperate prayer. This is not, oh God, help. This isn't a Nehemiah prayer. God, give me, grant me favor with the king. I love that prayer in Nehemiah. This is different. I'm crying. I'm weeping before the Lord. I'm pleading with God for mercy and grace. And, and, and that's a hard thing to do because you begin to question the character of God when you have to keep pleading and crying. But the text tells us about God. He says he inclined his ear. In other words, he bent down to listen. If you can imagine your loving parent, your child's sick with fever, they can't raise themselves up to speak to you. They can't even raise their voice up to you. And so what do you do as a parent? You bend down lower and lower. I mean, you, you bend down to the point of putting your ear over their mouth. You are so inclined to hear what they want to say. And that is the picture that we have of God. That when we're in this pit of destruction, that he leans down. God is inclining his ear. He's bending down to hear us. And, and, and here, David, he did. Because look at what it says, that he, he dragged them out. He rescued them. He took them out of the pit of destruction and set his feet on a place that were secure and strong. He delivered David out of the danger that he was in. We don't know what the deliverance was. It could have been, it could have been from enemies. It could have been from some disease, a healing. It could have been from just the washing of David with forgiveness over his sins. But he did deliver him. And look at what David did. He, he began to sing. I do find that to be evidence of God's spirit, that joy that leads to singing. You know, that leads to this newfound joy over God delivering. God just, he wasn't just joy-filled over his life being set on rock. I think he was joyful over the fact that God rescued his faith. That, that the crushing nature of the trial begins to compromise the integrity of our faith, and God saves both us and our faith. And so he has a song in his heart. In fact, he's so joy-filled that he begins to want to share it with others. That's what he means in that third verse. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That David becomes a testimony to the very grace of God. So what David's doing here is he is in a current trial. And we'll get to that in 11 to 17. He's in this trial, and yet what he does first is he goes back to see the mercies of God. This is who God is. This is what he's done for me. This is how great he is. So, so let me just draw a couple of principles before we go on. Christian trials are going to come to us. They are common to men and women. We face trials. Some of your trials are going to be due to your own sinfulness or your stubbornness or perhaps even your blatant disregard for God. But other trials come to us that aren't so direct. They're they're the struggles that we have in relationships. It it might be long-term illness. It might be the loss of a job. It might be just those dark periods of depression that we don't know where they come from. But they just bring us down. It could be prolonged periods of dryness in the faith. It might be that you're in unrelenting marital conflict or some level of stress that is always this constant theme in your marriage. Or it could be just the absolute rebelliousness or 
or unheededness of your children to respond to you. That, that it's just this pervasive part of life now. And, and I mean, chronic, chronic pains like that are very depressing. They're very difficult to get over. So, you know, we face these trials. David faced them. David was a king, anointed. I mean, the forerunner, if you will, I mean, the, the one that, through whom the Messiah is going to come, the one that was a friend of God. So trials come to us, and we want to be aware of that. I remember <clears throat> I had that, that mentor when I was in seminary. I mean, he had great trials, wife with cancer, dying, and yet faithfully just enduring, holding up the glory of God in the face. So trials are going to come to us. But the Christian looks at those trials, and, and, and what he does is he turns to God first in prayer. And, and when I mean you turn to God in prayer, it's not kind of the arms crossed, I'm going to just throw up some prayer. I mean, we are crying out to God. I mean, the one who cries out to God is the one who understands the desperateness of a situation and their own ability to bring change. That's the kind of prayers that we are to offer. This sense of, you know, it's kind of like the guy that limps off the field. You know he's probably going to come back in. The guy that's hauled off the field on the stretcher, he's getting the story. He's not coming back in. That's the desperateness I'm talking about. An absolute awareness of I can't do it. And this is why it's hard for the good Christian. The good Christian who's really living his life morally and he has these these problems come in, and, and good by that I mean the moral person, sometimes they don't see how desperate their plight is. We have so many other avenues to pursue. We don't know. We don't legitimately understand how difficult our plight is. And so we don't sense that urgency that David felt when he was in the pit of destruction. And I would just encourage you, how do you pray? I mean, do you sense your own humility? David's going to say at the end of this psalm, he's going to say, as for me, I am poor and needy. Do you feel that way when you pray? I mean, do you, do you look at the situation and, and do you assess it and recognize, I don't have what it's going to take. I, I don't have the metal. I don't have the ability. God, I need you desperately to move here. And if you don't move, things aren't going to move. That's the way I try to pray with you. I can't change a lot of myself, and I think that I'm going to stand up here for 40 minutes a week and change you. I'm desperate for God to move in you because I can't do it. And so our prayers are desperation. But, but the Christian knows that when he prays that way, God's going to deliver. He's going to give sustaining grace. He's going to lift us out of the pit. He's going to help us. He's going to enable us to endure, to set our feet on a solid rock. It doesn't mean that he brings the immediate healing or he removes the, the difficulty in life. But, but you feel him sustain and uphold and, and put your feet in a position that you can weather the issue knowing that God is good. And that's what David testifies to. I mean, and, and that's what gives him the new song in his heart. He's thankful, God, you've delivered me. Do you have that song in your heart? Can you speak to the, to the grace of God in your life where he has sustained you? Carol and I were talking about this last night as we were praying, and I was thinking, you know, the dozens, I, I don't know, we, we didn't know 50, 100, I don't know how many times, that God has in various difficulties, whether it's marital conflict or parental issues or financial struggles or health issues, that God has just delivered us from it. He hasn't always just made it the lazy river following, but that sustaining grace that I know we're going to make it through. Uh, yeah, I, I feel secure in God. 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally, it feels as if hell is swirling around you, but I feel like it's going to be okay. That God's going to be there and God is moving in us right now. So, so we, want to be, we want to be historians of the grace in our lives that this song will come up in our heart. If you don't have a song to sing over God's grace, I want you to go back in your life. Where has God saved you? Where has God been delivering you? What, from what has God delivered you? Perhaps it's some besetting sin or some bad habit. Perhaps you've moved from being radically narcissistic to less so. Perhaps some piece of idolatry or some issue that you have in your life that God has moved you for, that's the song in your heart. And ultimately, that's what you're going to commend God to. Or I should say, that's what you're going to commend God to the people with. It's your testimony. In other words, when we go back and look at God's grace, we have a testimony. We have something to share. It's a changed life. That is evangelism according to the Bible. It's not just the programmatic stuff of going to doors. That has a place, but this, changed lives, begin to speak to the authenticity and the power of the gospel. One author said it this way. He said, they see a person, contrary to human experience, who is humble, in distress, and who never lost hope, trusted God, giving God the glory and deliverance. They see something genuine, authentic. The conviction starts to build in the unbeliever or the weak believer that there is life in godly living before God. Many will see this and start to look to God for grace and faith. I mean, the Judsons and the Wilberforces are still preaching to us, aren't they? Their lives are still preaching to us. There's hope there. So now I do have a word, you know, for the non-Christian here and for the weak believer as well, that when I do look at trials, and David's looking back in his life and he sees God's mercy and grace, and that's bolstering him for the trial that he's about to walk into. But I do want to say that trials aren't just these specific events in life. Trials are intended to be used by God to remind us that our world is not right. As hard as we try to get normalcy and happiness in life, trials in life are gifts to us by God, reminding us life is not as it should be. We are out of sync with God. This world is out of sync with God, and therefore, these are going to be the results of that. And we may try as hard as we can to find satisfaction in life. It will not last. And you as parents know this. You know, I was thinking when the kids would hit me with, with, well, I really want this toy when they're real young. And and this toy was going to be it. If I just have this toy, then I'm really going to be happy. Or, Or if I just have this friend, or if I have this new body, or if I have a new hairstyle, or if I have this new piece of technology... Now, you as a parent know, when your child says that, that they may be happy, but it may be for a day or two. You know it won't last. And yet, as parents, we buy into the same illogic. We forget to see these trials are ultimately pointing us to something greater. God is the answer to our issues. It's not fixing life. Life is going to be unfixable until Christ returns to fix it doesn't mean we don't strive. Just don't want us ever thinking that our hope lies in anything other than God, because it won't be. So, so here's David. So here's David in the first three verses. He's looked back. Now he's encountering a trial that we're going to see in 11 to 17. But he's looking back first, and he's fortifying his present faith with God's past mercy. 
But when he sees God in this past act of deliverance, look what he does. He almost goes in this explosion of praise for God. You're going to see him actually talk to God in verses 4. Read with me in 4 to 10. He says, blessed is the man. David's now the king of Israel. He's lobbying. He's being a spokesman. He's being an example to all of Israel. And he's calling to the congregation before him, and he's saying, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now look, in verse 5 he says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I'll proclaim and tell them, yet there are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear, burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have concealed, I have not concealed, your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. So here's David. David's just been bathing in the grace of God. This is the grace of God in my life. He's delivered me. And then he begins thinking about the character of God. I I mean, the trustworthiness of God. That's why he says, he says, people, and this is where I'm calling you as David. David's like a preacher here. In fact, he uses the word for evangelism later on. Then I'm calling you, blessed is the man, happy is the man, happy is the woman who trusts in the Lord. Now, David knows well the heart of men. And, and so you see in the second half of verse 4, he says, he says, who don't turn to the proud. In other words, we're so tempted to go with those people who make arrogant claims of deliverance. Well, if you do this, and if you follow this, then you're going to be out of your jam. You know, th- these boastful people that promote self-help books, well, if you just do this, then you're going to be out of a jam. David's saying, don't turn to the proud, and don't turn to lies. In other words, don't turn to those false promises. You and I live in a culture that is just filled with God's substitutes. I mean, we, there are therapists, there are books for everything. And if we just turn to these people and the promises that they make to us, then our lives will be better. They'll be happier. They'll be more fulfilled. And he's saying, not so. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Why? Well, in verse 5, he tells us, he says, You've multiplied your wondrous deeds. I mean, think about the deeds of God. People, just consider creation. You know, we've been having these rash of thunderstorms due to, you know, these high temps. And, and, you know, these lightning bolts, as Solomon, wake up at night with them, and and they they can go 140,000 miles per hour. They have have heat of 54,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, just the bolts of lightning. I mean, God has done wondrous things for us. Just, we live in this theater of his glory. And why do we turn to men when we have this God before us? And not only that, it's not just what he has done. Look with me in in the second half of the verse. He says, you've multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. And that word for thought can mean plan. God is both a God of the past. He's displayed his power. God is also a God of the future. He has future plans for us. People, we don't know what's going to come into our lives tomorrow. And we couldn't do anything about it anyways. But God knows both what's coming in and he's ordaining events tomorrow. So why? None can compare with God. Why would we turn to men? 
And, and so what David's saying is he's just telling the congregation, blessed is the man who trusts in this God. So if you're in trials and you're facing these difficulties, first we run to God. First we run to God. God, have mercy on us. God, incline your ear to me, is what he's drawing us. But not just that. David is so overwhelmed with God, as we ought to be overwhelmed with God, that, that he just then declares his desire to be obedient. Look at 6 to 8. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. You have given me an open ear. Now let me explain this. This is kind of a confusing little section of the psalm, and I cannot um, get into it to the degree that I would desire. But, but he says, you've given me an open ear. I think what David's saying here is, is literally, he's saying, you have dug ears for me. In other words, plural, you've dug ears for me. It's not speaking about that, that um, custom in Exodus 21 where they put the owl through the ear and the, and the man or the woman you know, agrees to be a servant to the master, a voluntary servitude. But it has to do with God digging ears, I think, so that David could understand that our God is a God who does not simply delight in sacrifice for sacrifice's sake, but he delights in a heart that is disposed to do the will of God. That, 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 God's, that David sees now, he has understanding that as king, he offering sacrifices is appropriate for him, but rather delighting in the will of God. And that's what he says here. He says, behold, I come. David's saying as king, I'm going to come and present myself. In the scroll of the book, it's written of me that I delight to do your will, that he wants to walk out what the scriptures say. I delight to do the will of God, that God is more pleased with obedience than sacrifice. Now, what's amazing about God is God's love for us is not coming to us when we're obedient. You know, many of us here think, well, if I act in an obedient fashion, God's going to love me and deliver me out of the trial. But we see that it's God's mercy to us first that free us to be obedient. It's God's love that fuels our obedience. That's what David is overwhelmed with, God. And he says, God, you are so good. I now delight to do your will. Now that I see the good, rich character of God, to do the will of God is my joy. It's my happiness. Instead of the drudgery that many of us feel with doing the will of God. Even obedience in times of trial and difficulty. And then last, you see in 9 and 10, he declares this to the church. He declares this to the congregation. So, What we see here is David looking back at the past mercies of God. He's looking at the character of God. And let me just explain one thing regarding this section here. Um, David is delighting in God. And as king, he's now going to walk in the will of God. And David has seen the goodness of God. As New Testament Christians, we, I think, have a much clearer vision of the goodness of God. You know, David saw the greatness of God, wanted to delight in him. But now we have the son of David, Jesus, who has come. And and interestingly, in Hebrews chapter 10, Jesus applies these words, or at least the writer of Hebrews attributes that Jesus said, Behold, I've come. And he draws these texts out of 6, 7, and 8 of Psalm 40. And he says this is the basis of his ministry that he's come to delight in God's will. And what we find in Jesus that we don't find in David is David still had to offer sacrifices and yet live obediently. Jesus has come as the sacrifice, and therefore no more sacrifices needed. So when we think about God, we just don't think about his marvelous deeds in creation. But now as Christians, we think about his marvelous deeds in Christ. 
So when you're in trial, you can look at the past mercies of God, but you also look at the character of God in Christ, that he has sent one to be humble, to become obedient even to death on a cross by becoming a slave, a servant to us. And so Jesus is the ultimate king, humbling himself under his people to uphold and strengthen them. So you are going to be facing trials. Do you have a song in your heart over the past mercies of God? Do you have a clear belief in the character of God I've just described? Because if you look with me in 11, you see a different posture that David takes. Now he's getting to the present. He says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So David now, okay, so now we're, we're speeding up. David has been thinking about the mercies of God. He's thinking about the character of God. Now he's in a bit of a jam. We're not left uncertain about the jam, right? The jam's very clear. He's knee-deep in sin. He's not knee-deep in sin. He's up to his nose. He can't even see through it. He cannot see his sin is so great. He said, I can't see. I can't even number it. It's more than the hairs on my head. I can't even live through it. My heart's failing me. So David is stuck in the middle of sin in his life. And yet he prays. He prays to God for deliverance. His heart is a heart of faith. Look in verse 11. He says, as for you, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. I mean, David sees. This is incredible. Because of what we tend to do, we tend to run from God in our sin. And yet David is running to God in his sin. He's taking his sin with him and running to God. He's appealing to God. Make haste. Hurry, don't delay in the midst of this sin. You know, I I think you would agree with me that most of us, when we are convicted of sin, we shy away from God. We want to have a couple devotions. We want to repent, or we want to, or not just repent, we want to have a few devotions. We want to bring a few things to the table so that we're not so hypocritical going to God. Yet God knows your heart. He knows the, the sin in your life. And he's still bidding us to come to him. Amazingly gracious of God. And and David now sees this, and it's like he's going to grab our attention again in 16 and 17. He he talks to us again. He says, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say, great is the Lord. In other words, he's saying, people of God, even knee-deep in sin, seek the Lord, and while you seek him, rejoice in him. Sin should not silence your prayers. In fact, it should cause them to spill out in greater measure to God. So, so, for, so what David's trying to do here is he's saying, okay, I'm in trouble now. I'm knee-deep in sin. I've looked back. God saved me before. I see the character of God. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to move. I, I'm, I'm not going to forget that I have problems, but I'm not going to let 
The problem stopped me from coming to God. Why? Because I have a reservoir of grace. People of God, for the Christian here, you need to think of your life as a reservoir of grace that you can dip into, that you can think back on. As I said at the beginning, you need to know your histories. You need to know where God has delivered you. The older you get, the deeper the pool should be. God has been sustaining you, saving you, delivering you. And if God's going to be faithful in doing that, then he's going to be faithful in the future. But, but we don't want to just forget what God's done, but we also don't want to fail. We don't want to be silenced. Some of you, when you're in sin, don't want to pray. And, and some have even told me, well, I don't want to be hypocritical. I, I know that if I'm sinning, God doesn't hear me. And I would say that if you're defiantly in sin, unwilling to repent, unwilling to bend before God, God may bring a measure of discipline to you by, by causing a sense of distance. I don't doubt that. But, but if you're broken over your sin and it causes you to feel dirty and shameful. That is no reason to pray. We have it clearly here. David says, my iniquities have overwhelmed me, and he's still running to God. And so those of us who are struggling right now, in in whatever struggle you have, that, that God is open, willing to hear your prayers and to deliver you from the sin that you're in. Charles Spurgeon prayed it this way. He says, It is ever the Spirit's work to turn the eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. He's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. He insinuates, your sins are far too great for pardon. You have no faith. You do not repent enough. You'll never be able to continue to the end. You have not the joy of his children. You have such a wavering hold of Jesus. Doesn't that, I mean, don't you hear that in your mind? This condemnation. How could God love you? You're back in that sin again. You're doing this again. You said you wouldn't do it, and here you're doing it. He says, all these thoughts are about self. We shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self, and he tells us that we're nothing but that Christ is all in all. Remember, it is not thy hold of Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not thy joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou art grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to thy hope, but to Jesus, the source of the hope. Look not to thy faith, but to Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. So as New Testament believers, even if we're in sin, even if our trial is upon us because of our sin, we can still look to Jesus. We can run to the Father because of the merits of Christ. And then also the last thing about in terms of overcoming or fighting for faith in the midst of trial is having a good hold of your salvation. You know, he says in that verse 17 or 16, he says, "Um, all may but all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. This is in the context of trial. People of God, you can be happy in God in the midst of trial. You can be. I mean, you you focus on the salvation. How often do you think of your salvation? Would it be true to say to you, do you love your salvation? Are you a lover of what God has done for you? Have you meditated? Have you thought? Have you considered it? Do you dwell upon it? 
Do you think about what it means that, that God has saved you? Because that, for me, <clears throat> particularly the cross, the cross for me is, is an orientation point in trial. The cross for me is, when I look at the cross, I understand that, that grace and mercy have met there for me. And, and I'm not left wondering about God's consideration of me. Uh, the cross reminds me that God has made a covenant in the blood of Christ that's eternal. And so even though I be faithless, he is faithful. He cannot disown himself. He cannot disown himself because now I am in the people of God. And there has been a covenant established with God and me and you in the blood of Christ that cannot be turned back. It cannot be rolled back. It can't be changed. They can't grind father in any change to it. And so I look at the cross and I realize, you know, even though I may be in the midst of sin, even though I may be in the midst of great trial, he will be faithful to me, which takes my eyes off myself and puts it back on his son. So, so this psalm is intended, it's, in, it's instructional for you. So when you face trials, and the trials may be of your own doing and your own sin and the consequences of it, you want to look back at the mercies of God and see he has delivered me. And, and it bolsters your faith. You want to look back at the character of God, that he's trustworthy. He, he, is, he is worthy of your obedience, worthy of your declaration. And then you look forward and say, no, I'm going to go in the mercies of God. I'm going to trust in the sovereign, eternal covenant that God has made with us in Christ. And I'm going to be happy. I'm going to rejoice in him. And I don't mean a happy, giddy rejoicing. I mean this, this foundational joy that God is good to me. No matter what we're in, we will yet rejoice and be thankful in him. Now, for the non-Christian here, um, this doesn't apply to the person outside of Christ. They don't, you don't have the covenant to which you can refer to. You don't have this established relationship with God that you can cling to. Life will always seem dissonant for you because we're trying to, you're trying to live apart from God. And I would just put before you that if your heart is stirred, if you have questions, we always want to entertain those up front after the service. And I'd invite you to do that. So let me pray for us first, and let's try to respond to God's word. And so in these times of prayer, what we're looking to do is truth has been communicated uh, as best I can do to you. And, and now it's the Spirit of God taking the word upon your heart. And now let's respond to it with joy or thanksgiving or repentance. And we would ask that because we're doing this as a church, we're doing this as a family, as a body, I would just ask for you to make your prayers loud so that we can hear you and agree with you uh, and join with you in the prayer. And I would also ask you to make them brief so that many others may share in this time of corporate uh, thanksgiving. I'll start and then uh, Keith will close us uh, in a few minutes. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, we are mindful, Father, even as we pray, that as your servant has said, the machinery of prayer uh, is not always visible, but most efficient is its results. And so, Father, we come to you asking for grace to understand this. And, Father, that you would, you would plant it deep within our soul that as we do encounter trials, uh, we might be those who seek you and rejoice in you. We're glad in you because we're continually loving our salvation, able to say, great is the Lord. Would you give us and grant us grace to do this? Thank you.